Welcome to the Lion's Tribe. I am Pastor Jimmy Udukoya. I pray this episode blesses you and it reminds you to become the lion that God has called you to be. Be blessed. Cut of the covenant, we are still in the book of Joshua. You know, it wasn't a plan, but God has his plans. We started in Joshua 1, then we went to Joshua 2. Um, with the Jordan process, then we went through with uh, the scarlet thread in Joshua 2, then we went through the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of His Presence in Joshua 4, now we are in the cut of the covenant in Joshua 5. Let's read from Joshua 5 in the first, um, from the first verse, I will be reading from the Amplified Version, um, Amplified Version, Joshua 5. Amen? It says this, Now it happened when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard, somebody say heard, that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over their hearts, <laughs> melted in despair. And there was no fighting spirit in them any longer because of the Israelites and what God had done for them. For somebody here, your miracles will paralyze your enemies. Ah, in this month, of glorious encounters. What God will do in your life, your testimonies shall paralyze your enemies. Verse 2, it says this. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise. Somebody say circumcise. Circumcise the new generations of the sons of Israel as was done before. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeath Haroth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness along the way after they left Egypt. All the males who came out were circumcised, but all the males who were born in the wilderness on the way as they left Egypt had not been circumcised. For the Israelites walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, died because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. To them, the Lord has sworn an oath that he would not let them see the land which he had promised to their fathers to give us, a land of abundance, flowing with milk and honey. So it was their uncircumcised sons whom he raised up in their place, whom Joshua circumcised because circumcision had not been performed on the way. Then when they had finished circumcising all the males of the nation, they stayed in their place in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach, derision, ridicule of Egypt from you. For somebody, God is rolling away the reproach today in the name of Jesus. He says, so the name of that place is called Gilgal, rolling to this day. 
When the Israelites camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. Now, let's stop right there and go to the beginning. I began to read this, and I found this interesting, so I began to jot certain notes down. We see the first thing that God requires of the children of Israel when they come into Canaan is that all the male Israelites be circumcised. And it wasn't until they had been circumcised that the Lord said to Joshua that he had rolled away the reproach of Egypt. What does reproach mean? It means disgrace. It means shame. Proverbs 14, 34 says this. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Look at the Amplified. It says righteousness. This is Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness, moral and spiritual integrity, and virtuous character exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace. To any people. And God says that it was after they were circumcised that he rolled away the disgrace, the shame, the ridicule of Egypt from the children of Israel. So I wrote down Egypt for the children of Israel represented. So I said for the children of Israel, Egypt represented mental and physical slavery. Egypt represented a loss of identity. It represented a loss of self-worth. It represented oppression, depression, hopelessness, anguish, and pain. And then I wrote, so it was the circumcision that removed the shame of Egypt. Now, it is important to note that circumcision was not required by God until they had crossed over into the Jordan. All through the time they were in the wilderness, all through the time they were sojourning, God didn't require circumcision. But the minute they had entered into the promise, circumcision was required. Which seems to indicate that circumcision was their eligibility to their inheritance. Until they were circumcised as a nation, they could not rightfully occupy or possess the promise. So not only did circumcision remove shame, it was what legitimized them as heirs to possess their inheritance. Now, when I'm talking or I'm saying all these things, I think that it's important as we are starting that we lay the foundation because we cannot fully understand the significance of circumcision and what it represents and how it pertains to the promise until we examine two things. The first thing we must examine is the legitimacy of God's promise to them as an inheritance. And the second thing we must look at is circumcision and the role it plays in acquiring the promise. Are you still with me? We're setting the foundation, so we're going to go deep. First, we must examine the legitimacy of God's promise to them as an inheritance. He had said to Abraham, your descendants shall inherit this. What is the legitimacy of that promise? What makes them rightful heirs? And secondly, circumcision and the role it plays in acquiring the promise. So let's start at the beginning. Let's go to Genesis 15. We're going to go on the journey, amen? Genesis 15, if you are with me, say amen. amen. Genesis 15 from verse 5 to 19, amplified version. It is impossible for us to understand this if we don't look at the historical context and must understand the history behind the promised land, Amen. 
Genesis 15, 5 to 19, it says this. And the Lord brought Abraham outside his tent into the night and said this. Look now towards the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to them, they said to him, so numerous shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in, affirmed, trusted in, relied on, remained steadfast to the Lord, and he counted, credited it to him as doing right in regard to God and man. And he said to him, I am the same Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. Somebody say this land as an inheritance. <laughs> but Abraham said, Lord God, by what proof will I know that I will inherit it? So God says to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham brought all these to him and cut them down the middle and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was setting, a deep sleep overcame Abraham. And a horror, terror, shuddering fear, nightmare of great darkness overcame him. Now God said to Abraham, Know for sure that your descendants will be strangers living temporarily in a land, Egypt, that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But on that nation on whom your descendants will serve, I will bring judgment. And afterwards, they will come out of that land with great possessions. As for you, you shall die and go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, your descendants shall return here. Look at God. He's telling him with detail what's going to happen in 400 years. And you're worried about your tomorrow. <laughs> he says this. Then, <laughs> in the fourth generation, I said it before, God does not deal with you situationally. He deals with you generationally. Your fourth generation, your descendants shall return where? Here, to Canaan, the land of promise. Why? For the wickedness. And the guilt of the Amorites is not yet complete. <laughs> I fear God. It's not finished. When the sun had gone down and the deep darkness had come, there appeared a smoking brazier and a flaming torch which passed between the divided pieces of the animals. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant, a promise, a pledge with Abram saying, to your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, 
the land of the Kenites and the Kenzanites and the Camonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim, the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Gigashites and the Jebusites, all these sites. Now, if we read that, it's very easy to read that and just gloss over what's happened. But if you understood the significance of what had happened, then it begins to make sense. Let's continue on. It says this, when God said to Abraham that his descendants would be numerous, the Bible says in verse 5 that he believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, right? Now look at what happens in verse 6. But when God told him that he would give him the land as an inheritance, he doubted God. Have you ever, have you, have you ever seen that? Verse 5, God says to him, your descendants, numerous. He says, he believed. It was credited for righteousness. Look at verse 6. Put verse 6 back up. And the next thing, continue, continue on. 7, it says this. And he said, I am the same Lord, continue, who brought you out of the Chaldeans to give you this land as an inheritance. Look at Abraham's response. Abraham says what? <laughs> In one verse, he believed God. In the next one, he doubted God. Isn't it interesting how we can believe God in one area of our lives but doubt him in another area? Like he's not the same God. And when we do that, what we are doing is we are indirectly questioning his ability and his capacity. Now Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now unto him, look at the amplified version, Now unto him, who is able, Ephesians 3.20, to carry out his purpose and do what? Come on, talk back to me. Super abundantly, more than all we dare to ask or think. Infinitely beyond. Somebody say infinitely. Infinite, it has no end. Infinitely beyond what? Our greatest prayers, hopes, or dreams. According to what? Whose power? His power that is at work within us. It is not according to your power. It is according to his power. So when we doubt God in certain areas of our lives, it is a clear indicator to the extent of how much of his power we are allowing to work in us. Oh, it got really quiet. It got really quiet. I'll say that again. When we doubt God in certain areas of our lives, it is a clear indicator to the extent of how much of his power we are allowing to work in us. See, we can believe God for provision, but we doubt him for the fruit of the womb. Oh, it got even quieter. We can believe him for a promotion at work, but we doubt him to heal our bodies. Now we must remember that Zechariah 4.1 says this, that it is not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says who? It is not by your power, 
It is not by your ability. It is not by your might, but it is by His Spirit, says the Lord. Lest we forget Romans 4, 21. It says this, being fully convinced that God had the power to do what He has promised. We must allow his power to work in us. If God has said it, then he will do it. If he has spoken a promise to you, then it must come to pass. And we must believe. We must align. We must allow his power to do what he said he will do. So I began to ask myself a question. Why was it that Abraham believed God when he came to his descendants, but doubted when he came to inheriting land. And then the only way you can answer that question is if you understand the times that Abraham lived in. He believed God. The Bible says Abraham's body was, Abraham was in his 90s, and yet he believed God. But when he came to the issue of land, he asked for proof. He said, this one is a different matter. <laughs> Why did he do that? We must understand the times he lived in. Are you still with me? We're setting the foundation. Now, if you understand the times that Abraham lived in, when God told him that this land that you are here, I will give you, Abraham was thinking to himself, but sir, this land is already occupied by the Amorites. <laughs> and when you have land, you have kings. When you have land, you have kings. And they lived in the time of an aristocracy, which means you had a suzerain or a sovereign, a king, and you had vassals who were the subjects. So you had subjects who served a king. So when he came to land, only kings could pledge or covenant their lands to their subjects. The only way any land was given is if the king said so. So you can understand Abraham's question of doubt when he says to God, God, by what proof will you give me this land? How will I inherit land that belongs to another king? Are you seeing the dilemma? God, you say that you will make me a father, that you can do, but now you're talking about land that belongs to kings. How exactly will you do that? But I wrote down, I said, but Abraham forgot that he was talking to the king of kings. <laughs> and he forgot he was talking to the Lord of lords. Psalm 24 one says this, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and everything that dwells in it. Kings don't realize that they are just tenants. God is the landlord. In every situation, as long as it exists in this earth, it belongs to the Lord. There is no way that you will go that you have no right to be because your father is king. My father is king. He forgot who he was talking to. Now, it now begins to make sense. When he asked for proof, God obliged him and gave him proof. And what God did was to perform a covenant right that kings performed with their subjects. Look at how God, he, he, he humors us. 
God is talking to a mere man and he says to him, I'm going to give you land. And the man says, how? And he says, okay, I'll show you. And for his own sake, God decides to perform a covenant right between him and Abraham. Now, when we talk about the word covenant, the Hebrew word means treaty or alliance pledge. It is usually between two parties. And most of the time, in that time, it was always between one that was superior and one that was inferior. Now, when you saw a covenant between a king and a subject, there were two types of covenants that could happen. One was a pledge or a grant, and the other was a treaty. One was a pledge, the other was a... Are you still with me? We're setting the foundations. Now, both of these covenants entailed kings killing animals where animals would be cut in halves and put on either side, and it required one participant to pass between the animals that were caught depending on the type of covenant that was being caught. The type of the covenant being caught determined who walked through the pieces. Now, when they walked through the pieces, most of the times it was always associated with a curse or a repercussion. In other words, when you walk through the piece, when you split this animal, put it on one side and another side, and somebody walks through, it is saying, Woe be unto me that the same fate that has happened to these animals happens to me if I break this covenant. Are you with me? And I began to read about the covenant and I found it fascinating. And I needed to dig deep. I needed to understand why would God cut a covenant? What type of covenant did he cut? Was, was this a pledge or was this a treaty? I said there were two types. And I began to do some research, and I found an Israeli author that said this. When it is a treaty, it constitutes an obligation of the vassal to his master. And when it's a grant, it's an obligation of the master to the servant. So treaty is an obligation of the servant to the master. Grant is an obligation of the master to the servant. Are you with me? In the grant... The curse is directed towards anyone who will violate the rights of the servant. While in a treaty, the curse is directed to anyone who violates the rights of the king. I'll say it again. There are two types. There is a grant and there is a treaty. When it is a grant, anyone who violates the rights of of the servant because the king is granting unto the servant. So anybody that tries to break the covenant, the curse is upon them. But if it's a treaty, it is the obligation of the servant to the king. And should he break it, the curse is on. Are we still together? Don't worry, we're going somewhere. Stay with me. It is important to understand the difference. Now, an example of a treaty is Jeremiah 34. Put it on the screen. I want to show you. Jeremiah 34. Look at verse 8. Jeremiah 34 verse 8. Is it on the screen? It says this. Then the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the Hebrew people who were slaves in Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them that every man should let his Hebrew slaves, male and female, go free so that no one would make a slave of a Jew his brother. So all the princes and all the people who had entered into covenant agreed 
right? That everyone would let his male servant and his female servant go free, and no one would keep them in bondage any longer. They obeyed and set them free. Look at 11. But afterwards, they backed out of the and made the male servants and the female servants who they had set free return to them and brought the male servants and the female servants again into servitude. So then you recently returned, turned and repented. So let's jump to verse 15. Sorry. This is God speaking. So then you recently turned and repented, doing what was right in my sight, each man proclaiming release from servitude to his countrymen, who was his bond servant. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called my name. Yet you backed out of the covenant and profaned my name. And each man took back his servant, male and female, who you had set free in accordance with their desires. And you brought them to servitude again to be your male servants and your male female servants. Look at 18. This is God speaking. The men who have violated my covenant, who have not kept the terms of the solemn pledge, which they made before me, when they split the sacrificial calf in half and afterwards walked between its separated pieces, sealing their pledge to me. By what? Placing a curse on themselves should they violate the covenant. Those men I will make like who? The prince of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the high officials, the priest and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give into the hands of their enemies and into the hands of those who seek their... And like the body of who? Of what? The calf. Their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. Do you see the difference? One is a grant, the other is a treaty. The people of Israel entered the treaty with God and they passed through the calf. And the obligation of the treaty when you pass through, the curse is on the subjects. They made a covenant with God and God was saying, because you broke it, this is what will happen to you. Now, you must understand that that was very different from the covenant God entered into with Abraham. Abraham's home was a grant. Abraham's own was a covenant of a king giving land to his subject. Do you see the difference? Now, one of the reasons that the grant was performed was when a subject had found favor in the sight of the king, and it was a, as a result of deed or loyalty. So the king would give land to a subject, and this gift was for generations. It was for their children's children. So when we see God coming into covenant with Abraham and he caught that, it was giving the children of Israel legitimate rights to the land of Canaan because he actually caught the grant covenant with Abraham. Are you with me? So when God walks through, the Bible says that he caught the calf. It was a grant. It was a gift to Abraham. Now, look at verse 17, going back to Genesis. Genesis 15, look at 17. It says, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying what? To your descendants, I have given what land? This land. 
from the river of Egypt to the great river, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenzanites, all the sites. You get it. So from that moment, once God entered into covenant with Abraham, the land ceased to be the kings of the Aramites anymore. From that moment, it was now by right and legitimacy the land of the children of Israel. Remember, we're talking about the legitimacy of the inheritance, right? Let's go to Genesis 17. I want to show you something else. So God has given them the promise. I'm still setting the foundation, amen? Are you still with me? Now, God has given Abraham the promise. Look at Genesis 17. It says this. When Abraham was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said what? I am God Almighty. Walk habitually before me with integrity, knowing that you are always in my presence. And be blameless and complete in obedience to me. I will establish my covenant my everlasting promise between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly through your descendants. Then Abraham fell on his face in worship, and God spoke to him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. As a result, you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abraham, exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham. Father of a multitude, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants, and after you throughout the generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger moving from place to place. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting, pos everlasting possession of what? Property. And I will be their God. Further, God says to Abraham, as for you, you're part of the agreement. You see, there's a difference between 15 and 17. In 15, it was a grant. God gave him land. In 17, this is a treaty. Now, Abraham has an obligation to king. He says what? As for you, as for you, your part of the agreement, you shall keep and faithfully obey the terms of my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generation. This is the sign of my covenant which you shall keep and faithfully obey between me and you and your descendants after you. What is the sign? Every male amongst you shall be and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign. Somebody say the sign. It shall be a symbol, memorial of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation, including a servant which is born in your house or who is purchased with your money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house 
or one who is purchased with your money must be circumcised, and the sign of my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be what? From his people because he has... Now, do you see why he required them to be circumcised when they came into the inheritance? Because if they did not do that, they were in violation of the treaty, of the covenants that God had cut with Abraham. Look at this. I wrote this down. I said, so circumcision was the sign, was the symbol, was the cut of the covenant. Somebody say cut of the covenant. Circumcision represented that you were under the covenant of God. You bore the mark of God's covenant. You were marked by God as being one of his own. Can we talk about being marked for a second? In African culture, we understand what it is to be marked. How many tribal marks? Have you heard of tribal marks? Now, historically, tribal marks were used as a sense of identification. In other words, your marks told a story of who you were, where you were from, and the community that you belonged to. When you put a mark on something, it, den it denotes ownership. You belong to someone or you belong to something. See, that's why every cult, every fraternity has an insignia. They have a greeting. They have a code. Something that serves as a form of identification because it proves or shows who you belong. So I wrote down, when you are marked, you are protected. Genesis 4.15 says this, And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, a sevenfold vengeance, that is punishment seven times worse, shall be taken on him by me. And the Lord set what? A protective mark, a sign on Cain that no one who found him would kill him. I wrote down, when you are marked, you are separated. In Exodus, God separates, marks the children of Israel with his blood. Exodus 12, 13. He says this, the blood shall be a sign for you. Somebody say the blood. It shall be a sign for you on the doorpost of your house where you live. And when I see the blood, I shall pass over. And no affliction shall happen to you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I wrote down, when you are marked, you carry a message that only the readers can interpret. And I wrote in, in parentheses, it is foolishness to others. When you are marked, you carry a message only the readers can interpret. And it is foolishness to others. Joshua 2.18 says this, when we come into the land, and you tie this cord of scarlet thread. 
in the window through which you let us down and bring into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household so that they will be... You see, the scarlet thread meant nothing to the citizens of Jericho, but to the readers who understood the message, that scarlet thread meant something. But to everyone else, it was what? Foolishness. When God asked the children of Israel to put the blood on the lamp, of, of, of the lamb on the post, to the Egyptians, it was foolishness. It meant nothing. But when the reader came to read the blood, oh, I'm going somewhere. When the angel of death appeared, he read the message. These ones are separated. Because when I see the blood, I can interpret because the blood speaks. I have ears to hear what the blood is saying. The blood is saying, not these ones, but only those who have ears and can read the blood, understood the message. But to Egyptians, it was foolishness. Ah, yeah. I feel my help coming on. Listen, 1 Corinthians 1.18, put it on the board, says this. 1 Corinthians 18 says, for the message of the cross, put it up there. For the message, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is what? Ayah. The message of the cross is foolishness. It is absurd. It is illogical. <laughs> to those who are perishing and spiritually dead, those who cannot read, <laughs> those who do not have the ears, because they what? Reject it. But to who? To us who can read, <laughs> that understand the message of the mark, it is to us who are being saved by God's grace, it is what? The manifestation. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. It is the manifestation of the power of God, for it is written and forever remains written. <laughs> Look at your God. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the philosophy of the philosophers, <laughs> and the cleverness of the clever who do not know me. What will he do? Listen, listen. For us, it is a message. To them, it is what? Foolishness. Like when God told Noah, to build an ark on dry ground. To us, it was a message. To him, to them, it was what? Foolishness. Or when God told children of Israel to go forward when there was a Red Sea in front. To us, it was a message. To them, it was what? Or when God told Moses in Exodus 15 to take a log and throw it into the bitter waters. Uh, <laughs> To us, it was a message to them. Or when God told Gideon to go by the water, I said, those who lap like dogs, those are the ones that you choose to go into a battle. <laughs> those who lap, and there were 300 of them. To us, it was a message. But to them, it was foolishness. Or when Jesus would spit into the ground, and take sand, 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 and rub it in the eyes 
of one who could not see. To us, it was a message. To them, aha, aha. Look at verse 20. Let's go back to verse 20, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. He now, God is asking a question. Paul is writing and he says, Where is the wise man? Wise man, explain how sun gives sight to the blind. Wise man, explain how long a log of wood becomes treatment for water. Oh, wise man, explain how. There is a Red Sea in front of you and God is telling you to walk where there is water. Oh, wise man, philosopher, where is the scribe, scholar? Where is the debater, the logician, the orator of this age? Has God not exposed the foolishness of the world's wisdom? Uh-huh. For since the world... Through all its earthly wisdom, failed to recognize God. God, in his wisdom, was well pleased. <laughs> Through what? Through the foolishness of the message preached regarding salvation to serve, to save those who believe in Christ. Look at Romans 1. How did God expose the foolishness? See, when I read these things, I, ask, I like to ask questions. So when he says God exposed the foolishness of the world, I said, please, how? So tell me how God exposed the foolishness. He took me to Romans 1.18. Put it up. Romans 1.18 to 23. We're going to show how. It says this. For God does not overlook sin. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness suppress and stifle the truth because that which is known about God is evident within them. In their inner consciousness, for God made it evident to who? For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen being understood through his workmanship, all his creation, the wonderful things that he has made so that they who fail to believe and trust in him are without what? And without what? He says, I have put it in plain sight. Everything around you speaks to my glory. Everything about you speaks. So when I want to judge you, you cannot say you have excuse. <laughs> Let's continue. They are without excuse and without defense. Why? For even though they knew God as the creator, they did not honor him as God or give thanks for his wondrous creation. On the contrary, they became worthless in their thinking. Godless with pointless reasoning and silly speculations. And they are what? Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise. They became what? He says, I will display my glory before you. Let everything speak. If you cannot see, then I will cause your heart to be foolish. And your foolish hearts, because they are foolish, your wisdom, they will become what? Fools. And they exchanged the glory and majesty and 
excellence of the immortal God for an image, worthless idols in the shape of mortal man and birds and four-footed animals and reptiles. Look at 28. Jump to 28. Romans 1, jump to 28. He says this, And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God or consider him worth knowing as their creator, God did what? He gave them over to their depraved mind to do things which are improper and repulsive. So Psalm 14 verse 1 makes sense. Put it up on the screen. Psalm 14 verse 1 makes sense. It says this, the spiritually ignorant... The spiritually ignorant. What is the next word there? Now we see how they have become foolish. The spiritually ignorant fool has said in their hearts that what? They are corrupt. They are committed. They have committed repulsive and unspeakable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who what? <laughs> Anyone who understands, who acts wisely, who truly seeks after God, longing for his wisdom and guidance. They have all turned aside together and they have become corrupt. There is no one that does good. Not even one. So I asked the question, how did he expose their foolishness? He now talked about how the message had been preached. I now began to ask the question, what is this message that is preached? What is the message that is preached that is foolishness to them? And I wanted to find out. Can I just tell you the message that is preached? And then we'll stop. You see, every time we're going to a new season, I have to lay the foundation so we understand where we are going. Because if we don't understand the context and the pretext, you cannot understand the, the, the subtext of the text. So we must go back to history. We must understand the pretext, what happened. So that when we come to the text, we understand the context, what is happening within the structure of why it's happening. So when we understand the context, we can understand the subtext. Because the subtext, when God is walking through the, the, the animals, what does he mean? What is the significance of him walking? How did he do? So we must do all that groundwork. So when we talk about the cut of the covenant and how you are marked, we can now understand where we are going. Can I just tell you why, what the message was preached and we'll stop there. It says the message that was preached was foolishness. What is this message that is preached? Put Romans 1 on the board. Romans 1, 1 to 5. Romans 1, this message that is preached. It says, Paul, a born servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, special messenger, personally chosen, come on. Paul is hyping himself. Personally chosen representative. Set apart for preaching the gospel of God. Now, preaching the gospel of God, the news of salvation, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the sacred um, scriptures. The good news, the gospel is the good news. 
regarding his son, who as to the flesh, his human nature, was born a descendant of David to fulfill the covenant promises. Remember God talked about his descendants. To fulfill his covenant promises and as to his divine nature, according to the spirit of holiness, was openly designated to be who? The Son of God with power. In a triumphant and miraculous way, by the what? By his resurrection from the dead. <laughs> by his what? Resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, it is through him that we have received grace and our apostleship to promote obedience to the faith that makes disciples for his name's sake amongst all the Gentiles. I will read 1 Corinthians 1.22 and I will stop there. 1 Corinthians 1.22, going back to that scripture. It says this, For the Jews demanding signs, attesting miracles, and the Greek pursuing worldly wisdom and philosophy. But we preach what? <laughs> but we preach what? It is a message which is to the Jew a stumbling block that provokes their opposition. It is foolishness to them. And to the Gentile, what? For us, Christ crucified is the power. But to the Jew, it's a stumbling block. And to the Gentile, the philosopher, the wise one, it is utter and complete nonsense. It's nonsense. But us that understand the message, us who can read, and I asked the question, and I'll stop there. Why is Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews? You see, when I read, I have to ask questions. So let's put it there. Why is Christ being crucified a stumbling block to the Jews? And I know the answer, and I want to tell you, but I can't tell you because we need to stop. Come back next week for the cut of the covenant part. Uh -huh. That's how it happens. <laughs> but what I want you to take away from today's message is this. You have been marked. Because you are marked, you are protected. Because you are marked, you are separated. Because you are marked, you have the protection. You are identified as being under the covenant of God. Because you are marked, you carry a message that those who can read understand. <laughs> That's why when the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In fact, I was listening to a testimony and it was of a, a, I saw it online. My, my sister had showed it to me. It was an ex-satanist uh, it was a crazy story. It's going around. He was married to like a witch warlock and the, on the first day of his birth. 
in a ceremony of all the grand witches in, I think, Zimbabwe or Zambia. I don't remember where. So by the age of six or seven, it was already a terror. Because at the first day it was born, they had a covenant. They married. So he carried all the... <laughs> the number one witch in Africa married a one-day-old baby. And so you can imagine, in fact, it was so powerful that other lesser witches and warlocks, every time they would carry them so that they could help, he would usurp their power. So they started chasing him away. Don't come. Because whatever is inside, this demon inside, this power inside this one, pass all of us. And he was telling a story of how one time in the country he was told that they gave them a message that all the witches be on high alert. There is a man that is coming into town. And as long as he's in town, everybody must be, every witch must be 70 miles outside the city. They could not stay in the city. And not only that, they could not come back for 21 days. Because the residual effect of this man that had come, if you stayed in the city, it was instant death. Now, to the philosopher, to the Greek, no, not Greek, Greek, Grecians, if you are watching, not you now, we're talking then. I love you, Greece, Greece. Let me just, to the clever ones, sorry. No, we have a global audience. Greece, are halo. To the philosopher, to the wise ones, to those who are full in worldly wisdom, the man was just a bare man, just coming, just landing. But to those who could read, those who could understand the mark, the man said that this man was Maurice Cirillo. And so this man that just looked like a normal old man that was coming, the witches and the warlocks, could read the mark. <laughs> you enter a place and they think you are normal. Aya. But those who know, know that you are marked. You may look normal on the outside, but greater is he that is in you. Do you not know that you are marked? There is a cut of the covenant that symbolizes these ones are mine. And when they see the blood, they have no choice but to pass over. In the name of Jesus, concerning you, God's mark will continue to speak over your life. Anywhere you enter, those who see it will recognize the mark. It shall cause for a separation. It shall cause for your protection. It shall cause for your elevation. In the name of Jesus, we come against the spirit of death. We come against the spirit of loss. We come against the spirit of anxiety. Any spirit that comes, any oppression, any depression, any attack, when they read the mark, 
Because it is in him that walketh in us both to will and to do of his good work. And it's because it is not by power or by might and because of his spirit, the mark of his spirit will speak for you. In the name of Jesus. This week the Lord bless you. This week the Lord keep you. This week God cause his face to shine upon you. May the mark of the covenant announce you. May the mark of his covenant speak for you. May the mark of his presence separate you. May the mark of his presence accelerate you. May the mark of his presence fight for you. In the name of Jesus, when you step into a place, you step in with the glory of God. When you open up your mouth, the Holy Spirit shall fill it. He shall give you a tongue that cannot be contested, that will cause your enemies to become your friend. The testimonies of God in your life this week will confound your enemies. He'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Your going out is blessed. Your coming in is blessed. Whatever you lay your hands on to do will prosper. In the name of Jesus, the lights will fall for you in pleasant places. Anywhere the soles of your feet tread upon, he shall give it to you for your possession. He shall bring you before kings and great men that will cause even your enemies to become your friends. In the name of Jesus, when you lay your head down to sleep, you sleep in rest. When you arise, you arise in rest. When you enter, the favor of God goes before you. His favor shall surround you like a shield. In the name of Jesus, everything that your heart desires, the Lord will grant it. In the month of glorious encounter, creative miracles that will confound those and they will say, ah, these ones carry the mark of Christ. In the name of Jesus, I decree a net-breaking blessing that your nets cannot carry. In the name of Jesus, the land must yield for you. In the name of Jesus, and we cover everyone under the blood of Jesus. Sickness will not see you. Death will not see you. Calamity will not see you. Shame will not see you. Failure will not see you. Depression will not see you. Anxiety will not see you. Oppression shall not see you. In the name of Jesus, you shall go from glory to glory. You shall go from grace to grace. You shall go from strength to strength. And so shall it be in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this episode. I pray that you were blessed. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to subscribe. And if you know a fellow lion that needs to join the tribe, please be sure. Send them this link. Share this episode. God bless you.